Good morning. <clears throat> this morning I'll be reading from the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 1 through 14, if I can get my throat clear. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Christ and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through blood, the forgiveness of sins, the accordance with riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him and sealed, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. This is God's Word, and please be seated. Gracious Father, we come to You this morning, having worked and rested and having suffered and laughed, having good days and bad days this past week, in all of these moments of time we have counted on your presence, because in your presence was comfort and strength, and we have counted on your word, because there are diamonds in your truths, and we have counted on your promises, which give us hope for the future. And so we come again this morning, Father, to encounter your word and to hear it and to see it. And so we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that you will bless our seeing with discerning eyes and bless our hearing with discerning ears in order to go as your people of faith and of grace and of love Go into this next week, into this world, as your ambassadors. And this we pray, Father, to do in as salt and as light. Thank you, Father, for this great text that Roger has, has read for us this morning. We are grateful for it in all of the ways that it touches all that we know and all that we are. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name, and all the church said, Amen. As you know, we've been going through Ephesians on Sunday morning, not only in our adult Bible classes and our our kiddo classes, but also in our Sunday morning sermons. We're going to be spending March, April, and May going through this great letter. And we've been spending the last couple of weeks, as kind of an introduction to the letter, looking at the first 14 verses. That's been our reading every, right before the, the preaching, that's been our reading every week. Because what we find in, that, in the, those 14 verses in the original language is really just one stream of thought. It is one sentence in, in the original language. And that is a mouthful, not only for Paul and those that, that, that knew that original language, but even after it's been translated and has been sort of chopped up a little bit with commas and periods, it, it's a lot for us as well to try to ingest and to understand and to live by. And so what we've been doing is trying to look at those first 14 verses in Ephesians chapter 1 and to see them as an ancient hymn, because the word praise shows up a a lot. It's a hymn of praise. And like any good church hymn, it has three verses and a chorus. The first, uh, first line or the first stanza is what it is that God has done. And what God has done in reality is bless us with every spiritual blessing He has chosen us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. And on top of that, He has predestined us. Remember, that's a construction term. It's about shaping and building, sort of shaping us to be adopted as His children. And the chorus is to the praise of His glory. When Paul thinks about that, he just, he he breaks off and he's got to praise God to the praise of His glory. Which brings us to the second verse, which we looked at last week. And that is, this is what the Son has accomplished, or God the Son has done. And what we learned last week is that Christ, as the center of God's plan to unite all things in heaven on earth, has been able to do that by redeeming us, that is, not just to save us, but to redeem us. Which means that He has ended our enslavement to sin. The power of the old taskmaster has been cut by the fact that we have been redeemed, are bought out of that slavery by the blood of Christ. On top of that, we experience the forgiveness of sins. We have become a new people because of those those sins being forgiven and being put in a place where God no longer calls them into an accounting. And Paul ends that verse, of the second verse of that song, with the words that we, as disciples of Jesus, become the praise of His glory. Now this morning we're going to look at the final verse, verse 3, and that has to do with guests. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, right? Now when we think about the Holy Spirit, this is where a lot of folks get nervous. Holy Spirit is not something that's talked about a lot in the religious landscape of America. There is a lot of confusion at times. There are at times a lot of bad teaching, a lot of bad theology about the Spirit. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is found all over the Bible. We can't just ignore the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God has an integral and crucial place in our lives. But most of the theology that we have embraced all of our lives goes something like this. That we believe in God the Father who came and created the heavens and the earth, and then He went away. And then God the Son came and died on the cross, and saved the world, and then he went away. The Holy Spirit came, and wrote a book, and then he went away. And that's basically the way that a lot of us around uh, the Western 
uh, uh, civilized uh, Western world, think about the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Paul is not going to allow us to think that way. I love this quote. It's up here on the screen. Uh, A fellow by the name of Francis Chan wrote a book entitled Forgotten God about the Holy Spirit some years ago. At the very beginning of this book is a text, uh, a quote that I think is incredibly germane to us this morning. Chan writes, If I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of the main strategies would be to get churchgoers, like you and me, to ignore the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote this letter, knew that there was a lot of of, of maybe uh, uh, misinformation or misunderstanding about the Spirit, or that there might even even have been some under-teaching that the Holy Spirit had not, not been taught enough to this church in Ephesus. And he is not going to allow them to go any further without instructing their minds about what it is that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a disciple, which includes us. The Holy Spirit shows up in every chapter of the letter that we know as Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning, it's all about the Spirit and what the Spirit has accomplished. You go three verses later, chapter 1, And Paul, in this prayer that we'll look at next week, says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Drop over to chapter 2. And in him, Christ, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You go to chapter 3, the beginning of that chapter, verse 5 which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. You go 11 more verses, verse 16, another prayer, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His what? Spirit in your inner being. Chapter 4, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, isn't that an interesting verse? That the Holy Spirit of God can be grieved. To me, it's interesting. Because a lot of times, we think that the Holy Spirit is more of like a charge. It's a power. It's an electrical impulse. But here's the thing about electrical impulses. Those currents don't feel disappointment. A ray of sunshine, which is a form of energy, doesn't know the difference between happiness and and disappointment the holy spirit in chapter 4 is is experiencing grief in the way that god the father grieved over the sin of men back in genesis and felt sorrow that he had made man in the days of noah that the holy spirit can be grieved chapter 5 that's chapter 4 we go to chapter 5 do not be drunk on wine which leads to debauchery instead be filled with the say it church spirit we get to chapter 6 verse 18 and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind be alert and always keep on praying for all of the lord's people chapter 1 2 3 4 5 and 6 all instruction about the holy spirit now in this text that we're going to look at this morning verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 we're going to learn three things that are incredibly important, incredibly crucial for us as we live as disciples of Jesus. The first one is that the Spirit helps us to lean 
into God's future. The second is that the Spirit confirms spiritual realities. There's a reason why you are sealed. Number three, the Spirit creates confidence and trust in the promises of God, the presence of God, and so on and so forth. Now, let's think about those three things. Number one, disciples of Jesus of Nazareth lean into God's future. Look at verse 13. You also were included in Christ. Included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, one of the things that we've had as sort of an undercurrent and all of the things that we've been saying about Ephesians is that salvation is more than just having your sins forgiven. When you enter into salvation through the cross, through the blood, redemption, all of that, one of the things that happens is that you are blessed with every spiritual blessing that you need in order to live as a fruitful disciple of Jesus in the world. And part of that happens when you're redeemed. You're not just forgiven of your sins, but you're brought out from under the power of sin in your life. When you are redeemed, it's ending your enslavement to sin. Another thing that happens, and it's the second time in the first three sermons, we once again come into this idea of who we belong to and where we belong. In the first sermon, we talked about we are chosen and that we are predestined to be adopted as his sons, which means all of us become a part of his family. In verse 13, he's reminding us that when we're in Christ, we are included. There is inclusion into the family of God. We're not just chosen, but we are adopted, which means that we are included for one purpose and one purpose only. Verse 14, we are included, he says here, because there is an inheritance. An inheritance. Now, I, I may have told you about this fellow that I grew up with back in the, the, the mid-70s when I was in high school. I had a friend whose, uh, whose father was a brilliant uh, engineer. He had uh, engineered or pioneered a certain kind of technology in the area of telecommunications who brought a great deal of wealth into his life, which he shared with his, his kiddos. And as a 16-year-old kid, son of this, this pioneer in telecommunications, this kid in the middle of the 1970s had an incredible income just from his own personal stock. He had enough money coming in from his stock that he could have lived the rest of his life without ever working again. In fact, he's 16 years old. He has this kind of wealth. He's making actually more money at 16 than a lot of adults were making in that moment. Which presented my friend with a couple of choices. He could recognize the wonderment and, and the great, awesome income that he had and, and live and be happy and never have to work again, or he could live in light of what would be his inheritance of which the present experience was just a foretaste. And what he chose was to lean into his future. He uh, was one of these guys that even though at 16, we sort of teased him about being born 40. He became boring overnight. And you know why? It's because all of a sudden he began being dedicated to making good choices in his life. He, he made sure that he got the education that he needed 
in order to be the person that could receive the inheritance with integrity. He, he had a growing work ethic. He had a growing understanding of what it meant to have integrity in the workplace. All of these things. But he was leaning into his own future. Now, one of the things that I think is absolutely true about all mature people is that they have a sense of self. That includes people like you and me who are disciples of Jesus. Mature disciples of Jesus have an understanding. They have a sense of self. They have a sense of who they are. And they have a sense of where they are going. And, and not only that, as disciples of Jesus, leaning into God's future, we live in this future tense. We live in light of this inheritance that we know that we are going to receive the end of time. We live now based on what the future state will look like. We, we have a life that is based on future facts and realities that form the foundation of how we live right now in this day and in this place. We live with the future in sight, and this is where the Spirit becomes incredibly relevant to us in this life because the spiritual realities are confirmed by the Spirit. We continue in verse 13, when you believed... You were marked in him with a, say it, church, a seal. Let's say it together. A seal. Now, it's not the kind that claps his hand, balances the ball on its nose. At SeaWorld, we're talking about a, a mark that is made. And it's the promised Holy Spirit. In the ancient world, seals were used for three basic reasons. They were to show authenticity. They were to show possession. And they were to make something secure, like a door. And you remember that when Jesus died, they took him off of the cross. They prepared his body very rapidly for burial. They put him in a tomb. They rolled the door or the stone in front of the, the entrance. And what did they do? They sealed it, right? Now, the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, comes into your life to say that not only are you genuinely and authentically a, a disciple and a Christian and a child of God, but that he possesses you, and not only does God possess you, but you are secure in God. Now, quite frankly, that sounds like a lot of abstract theological theory. But when you begin to think about the pragmatic truths of what it is that that seal does, then those truths become more dense than the hope diamond. God the Spirit comes into your life like a signet ring. Remember the signet ring? You melt some wax onto a letter after you'd sealed it. You'd pour the wax on, bang onto it with the ring. It would leave an impression, and you knew that this belonged to the king. The Holy Spirit comes into your life like a signet ring, making an impression that says that you are a child of God. And that's not just abstract that is absolutely concrete and pragmatic. Let me give you some examples. Have you ever in all of your life, in all of your days, as a disciple of Jesus, have you ever felt weak? Have you ever felt like you were being faced by a temptation that was bigger than you? Have you ever felt weak and needed strength to face an enemy, an enemy of your heart that's bigger than you? The Spirit helps out. Verse uh, 16 of Ephesians 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
the Spirit helps you with the enemies of your heart. Have you ever felt like maybe you really weren't a legitimate child of God? Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. One of the reasons that God puts His Spirit inside of you is that His Spirit speaks to your spirit, which speaks to your mind and to your heart, and confirms and tells you that authentically and, and genuinely and, 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 and not in some abstract way, you are a child of God. Have you ever felt like there was something going on in your life and your prayers were not getting past the ceiling? In that same chapter of Romans, Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Have you ever, when it comes to Christian character, just really wondered how you're not able to get over uh, certain vices in your life, certain weaknesses in your life that you just don't seem to be able to get beyond anger or lust or dishonesty or whatever it might be? That's when the Spirit comes into your life. In Galatians 5, Paul's telling that church there that the fruit of the Spirit in your life is this incredibly, radically transformed life that looks like love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and on top of all of that, self-control. And how does that come? By living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit of God. Here's a huge one. Have you ever wondered why you just don't feel all that comfortable with sin anymore? That when there's something that you do that you know is a transgression, it is a trespassing, the laws of God, that there's this, this feeling of, it sometimes feels like deadness on the inside. Not necessarily a bad thing. In, in James chapter 4, the brother of Jesus says, that anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God? Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that he jealous, with jealousy he longs for the Spirit he caused to dwell in us? What that means is that when we begin to walk away from the will of God or to walk away from God Himself, the Spirit begins to yearn or to long for us. You know what the Spirit of God is like inside of you? It's like the friend of an addict. The friend of the addict always tries to keep the addict from killing themselves. That's what the Spirit does with those, that sense of, 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 of guilt and of, of, a, of a sort of a, a dead on the inside. You, you feel listless because of this thing that has happened in your life. And all of this is by the Spirit. And this is what Paul is referring to when he says to the church in Philippi that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But that's not all. Not only is the Spirit of God in you transforming your life, but the Spirit guarantees that inheritance that Paul just mentioned in the preceding verse. The Holy Spirit of God actually becomes the guarantor and the guarantee of all of the promises. So we read, When you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Now, in the original language, that word that we read of as, as guarantee or a, a deposit is actually the word that we would translate today as earnest money. And if you have ever bought a house, you know what earnest money is all about or a piece of property. 
you say to the real estate agent that uh, I'd like to buy this piece of property and to show my good faith in this, I'm going to give some earnest money, I'm going to give X number of dollars. And the idea is, is that this money goes to the guy that's selling the house or selling the land, and if you, who are trying to make the deal, decide to renege in any way or to back out of the deal, what happens to that earnest money? You lose it. When we bought our home here, when we first moved to San Antonio, we had Anna Kay uh, taking the family around. We we're looking at houses. We found one that we liked, the house that we're living in right now. And she said, if you're really serious, before you leave to go back to Kansas, what you need to do is to leave a little bit of earnest money. So we gave the earnest money. It was about uh, $500 uh, uh, that we gave to her. She uh, presented it to the buyer. They accepted the contract. And at some point, if Eli said, you know what, we've just changed our mind kind of at the last minute. What happens to the $500? Gone. Absolutely. It disappears. It's gone. Now, let that sink in just for a moment when we think that God has put and consider that God has put His Spirit in us like that. So you get to the end of life. And you're facing your own mortality. How does it affect you if you're not really sure if at the last minute God's going to say, you know, the, the cross of Jesus thing and that baptism thing and that repentance thing and the washing away of sins thing and the grace thing, I've changed my mind. you know what happens when you come to a moment like that where the promises of God are coming into your life and God reneges on the promises? He loses His Holy Spirit. Which means that God ceases to be God. God, in putting His Spirit in you, is putting His being on the line let that sink in for a moment. Every promise, every promise, spirit is a down payment, it's earnest money in the faith, he's putting his being on the line. And so you go, yeah, really? I, come on. He's God. How do you know that's really true? It's because he's done it before. It's he's done it before. Remember the, the words at the beginning, the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation? When we look at the cross, what do we see? God putting His being on the line for us. It was a prophecy of Isaiah that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions he would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so that's why I think that that quote from Francis Chan at the beginning of the sermon is so important. Let me remind you of what it says. If I were Satan... And my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, which is what? To save and to redeem and to include and to 
promise and inheritance and to bless with every spiritual blessing and to make people holy and blameless and to, to make them transformed and to make them not, not weaker and weaker but stronger and stronger and more beautiful and more beautiful. If his ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of the main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit of God. There's a reason that we have that spirit as a seal and we have that spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that inheritance. It is to remind us of the greatness of the reality, the facts that form our, the foundation of our faith. It is to remind us of the greatness of what, the greatness of the things that God is doing in our life as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's why it's not only for what God the Father has done and God the Spirit has done that we praise Him, but it's also for what He has done through God the Spirit in each and every one of us, turning us into the likeness of Christ, turning us into many Jesuses, to make us people of love and of compassion, self-control, gentleness, faithfulness in this world that we live, representing Him as His ambassadors. And not only that, but in enjoying the, the pleasure of His grace everywhere we go, and knowing that there's not a place that we go where his eyes as a father are not on his children, making us, making us a way to communicate the gospel through our life to people who may never, ever, ever read the Bible. And that's why we want to offer an invitation right now. Maybe the time has come in your life that you want to do business with, with, with the sin that is just keeps knocking you down and is taking away your joy on stealing, stealing your happiness and, and making you less than what you know you ought to be in the kingdom of God. And what you want more than anything else is to get beyond that and to have the prayers of the church and the, the counsel of your shepherd, your elders, to help you through that valley in your life. Or it may be that maybe for the first time you see that there's a glimmer of hope that you can be different. And it's not just the forgiveness of sin in salvation and finding yourself saved with God, but transformed, because that's what salvation is. You Not only are you saved from yourself, but you are saved unto God. And that is bringing a change into your life that God will bless and bless and bless. If that describes you this morning, then what we would ask is as these shepherds are down here at the front and we're standing and we're singing this next song, that you would come down and make those needs known. For the rest of us, let's stand and let's praise God for all of the great things He's done. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining.